like, circumstance of life, like, there was no way that I could have legitimately talked about this today, what I'm going to talk about today, like, four weeks ago. Um, and so, I'll go ahead and, and, and kind of preface a little bit. Over the past several weeks, we could have taken a lot of these ideas about you know, the people that we allow to influence us and the people that we influence, we could have taken it and put it into just about any backdrop to a degree. You know, we've talked about Adam and the influence that we have on our family, unused influence in that, in that sense. We've talked about the influence of Jethro and why Moses chose to listen to Jethro. We talked about the influence of Samuel that was ignored, heartbreaking as it is, and why we ignore those influences. And last week, we looked at the fact that Stephen had amazing influence, and, and it was good, even though it ended in a way that we would call bad. But in the grand scheme, according to Romans, it was good. Um, and we could have taken all of those, and we probably could have, if we stretched it, which we wouldn't like to, that's called eisegesis, which is bad, we could have probably put those in professional environments and said, look, this is how we think about influencers, and in professional environments, financial environments, work environments, um, all of those types of things. Today, I'm just going to be clear, like the type of influence that we're talking about today is gospel-driven um, biblical influence in which someone has their hand in their back pushing you towards Jesus, pulling you away from sin, doing those types of things. Because after all, that, that's the type of influence we need in our life. We would call that discipleship. But in the scheme of influence, I think of it as a long-term, like repeated influence long-term in our life. Um, that's the kind of influences we need, and that's the kind of influences we need to be as well. Like if we are looking to mature in Jesus and be mature, reproducing followers of Jesus, we need those people in our lives, and we also need to be that in other people's lives. And so when we're talking about influence today, that, that's what we're talking about. We're not going to wiggle around that. Um, here's the question. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the question that we're going to answer today. Uh, and this is, this is, man, it's just not, it's not fun. The question we're going to do our best to answer is, what do we do when that influencer in our life falls? What do we do when that person that we have, man, that we have trusted in, that we've allowed to shape us, what happens when they fall? What do we do? Because here's the reality. Sin is real. No one is spared. Uh, according to Scripture, Satan is prowling around like a lion, seeking those whom he might devour. No one's off the table. It doesn't matter how great their life has looked. It doesn't matter what they have spoken into your life. It doesn't matter. Satan's coming after them just like he's coming after you and me. And there is a chance that they could fall, they could fail. And so what do we do? Man, today, there were a couple different places that I had thought about looking in Scripture because we have two very prominent figures in Scripture that we could look at this and, and see just an example of, of just this type of failure. Not, not like a, your boss at the bank made a bad investment and lost his job. I'm not talking about that. No, I'm talking about like moral failure that, man, has huge, big repercussions, like huge, massive consequences, not just earthly consequences, but spiritual consequences as well. Uh, we can think about Peter. You know, Jesus told him, you know, look, you're going to deny me. And he's like, no, I'm not. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. We see what happened. We see that he did. Before the rooster crowed three times, he did it just as Jesus predicted. We see the restoration that took place. And, and I thought about looking at that, but I decided today, since we're kind of, we've been walking through since the beginning, and we talked about Samuel and Saul decided to look at the other one with David today. 
And so if you're not super familiar with David, King David that we're talking about, I want to give us just a little bit of background quickly before we talk about what led up to everything else. Um, but let me, let me pray for us first before we read. We're going to have a lot of Scripture popping up. If you have your Bibles, great. But if you want to follow along on the screen, that's fine too. Um, but let's pray together and pray that God will focus our hearts. Let us hear what we need to hear today. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Um, we thank you even when it comes to thinking about difficult things that you provide guidance for us. Um, you allow us to, to read, to hear, to perceive, to store what we need in our heart uh, so that we can move forward into this life that you've called us into, onto this mission that you've called us into. God, I pray, um, God, I pray you would speak louder than pain this morning. I pray you'd speak louder than wounding. I just pray you'd speak. We love you. Amen. So David, like we talked about a few weeks ago, there was this guy, Israel said, we want a king, and Samuel, the prophet at the time, kind of blending the gap between the judges and the prophets, said, you don't need a king, and the people were like, no, 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 we want a king, and God's like, okay, fine, I'll give you a king, and it was Saul, and we saw that Saul ignored Samuel's influence, the people of Israel ignored Samuel's influence, and, and as a result, the kingship that had been placed on him was removed, and it was being removed. In chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, uh, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Skipping down just a little bit, he had gone to Jesse, seen several of his sons. In verse 6, it says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took his horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so from the very beginning, the way that we meet this Daniel, he's a young kid watching sheep. We come to find out that he's incredibly brave, he's incredibly able, he does some amazing things, and God points to him and he says, that's the one, that's the one that I want. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord did not remain based upon covenant. It remained based on God's pleasure and God's grace, uh, but it was not a covenantal seal the way it is with us. And so in this place, the Lord's Spirit rushed upon David, and David began to display some amazing characteristics. Even as a young man, we see that he fought Goliath, the giant, not a metaphor. This was real. He was a young kid that goes out a bit brash, and people are cowering before this giant. He was like, man, if the Lord says that we can beat him, we can beat him. Give me whatever you need. I'll go take him down. And guess what he did? He did. He picked up a couple rocks. He had a sling. He hit, the, he hit the giant in the head. He cut his head off with his own sword. Pretty miraculous. From there on out, like it didn't stop. Like he led them through battle. He brought the ark back. At one point, he danced with disregard for people to wonder if he was, if he was being profane or not. He was like, look, if you think this is crazy, just watch. I will do way more than this for the glory of the Lord. 
And so from this point forward, he led, and he led with the Spirit of God. He was anointed, he was called. And he had amazing influence, not just on one, not just on two, but on a kingdom, a kingdom of people, a kingdom of God's chosen, called out people. Of all the people in the kingdom, David had the most influence. But then we skip forward to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I would love to read everything between then and here because I feel like we're not doing David great justice, but this is what we need to hear this morning. So if you have time, if you've been doing the one-year, five-day-a-week reading plan with us, you've already read through all of this. You were there last month. Uh, but if you haven't, go back, read the story. Read all of that. Chapter 11, 2 Samuel, it says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabab. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and he came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So just to make sure that we understand, David looked at another man's wife, being the king, the greatest influence, anointed by God, and he said, I want her, I will have her, and he did, and then she becomes pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband, and Joab sent to Uriah to David, and Uriah came, and David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how war was going, small talk. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why? Why did you not go to your own house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwells in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So he's like, look, I'm home from battle. All of my compatriots, all of my brothers in arms and my general, they're out fighting right now. The Ark of the Covenant is not even in its permanent resting place. It's in a tent right now. There's no way that I can go and be comfortable knowing that my men, my brothers, they're fighting. I can't do that. So David continues, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch in the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David tried one more time. He said, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go home. He'll forget his standards. He'll forget that his men are fighting, but there's comfort right across the street. But he doesn't. Fails again. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So I'm not going to read the rest of that chapter because that is exactly what happens. David says, This man is not cooperating with my sin. He's not helping me cover up the fact that I have made his wife pregnant, that I took something that was not mine, that I coveted what my neighbor had. He says, He's not helping, so what will I do? Well, I'm the king, I'll have him killed. 
And so while this reads like a chapter, to be honest, it took a while. It took some planning. It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't on Tuesday he saw Bathsheba. On Wednesday she found out she was pregnant. On Thursday he killed Uriah. No, this takes a little while. Like if you, if you missed biology class, understand, it takes a while for a baby to grow in a belly. It takes a while. They didn't have the EPT back then. She couldn't have found out that she was pregnant quickly. So this sin that we see David begin, it's not just one, but it's a series by an influencer. What do we do? What do we do with that? Well, Nathan, the prophet who had been so faithful to David to to tell him what God was saying, what God was speaking in chapter 12, um, he brings a parable to David. Chapter 12, verse 1. I think, yeah, we do have that. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to a rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan didn't tell him that it was a parable. He didn't tell him that it was a metaphor. He didn't tell him who exactly he was talking about. He just went in. He said, I have a story to tell you. Because at the time... King David was also functioning as the judge over Israel when there was a a matter to arbitrate. David did it. And so David hears this, and he hears about this guy who has a a ewe, a little lamb. Just don't get me wrong. I love animals, even cats sometimes. Like we've, we've established that I don't really like cats, but I love them from the general sense that they were God's created stuff. But anyway, um, this guy has a lamb, a ewe, a little, bit, a little baby sheep. And David finds out that someone takes it and gives it away, and David's anger is kindled. He's like, for that, he must die. He's angry about a sheep. Don't get me wrong, I love sheep. But it's a sheep. It's a sheep. Nathan says to David, not in the sense that we're used to, but he says, you are the man. Not you're the man, but you are the man. You are the man who took what was not yours, and you're angry over a sheep, but you're missing the fact that you took a man's wife, and then you took a man's life, neither of which were yours to take. The king had fallen. You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. The sad reality, the sad reality is that people fail. People fail. Sometimes the people that you would never expect fail. Like if we're putting this in the context of ministry, like I need more fingers than I have 
to count the men that I know, that I have trusted, who have failed. Here's the saddest thing to me about that. It doesn't shock me anymore. It stings, it hurts, but I've heard it so many times that it doesn't shock me anymore. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I realize that sin comes for every man. This is not an excuse. This is not liberty. This is not license. This is none of those things because 1 Corinthians 10 also tells us that there's never been a temptation that God has allowed to come into our life that He already hasn't given us the power to overcome. So this is not an excuse. This is not liberty. This is not to say that all men will fail, all women will fail, but it is to say that temptation comes for all and some will fail. Some will fail. I think in this moment we have... We have a couple options as to what we do, how do we respond, what, what do we allow our heart to do. Here, our natural response generally when this occurs, like imagine maybe if you're not a pastor, I get it, and you haven't allowed pastors to, to interject into your life and influence you, imagine like godly parents or godly people that you have allowed to influence your marriage. And imagine when you find out that infidelity has occurred, an affair has occurred. What goes through your mind? What has hurt you about that? How did you feel? Or imagine other people that you have placed great trust in to shape you, to mold you. They fail. They fall. What do you do? I think at first we, we have like shock. We're just like, I, I, we don't even know what to say. Shock goes to disbelief. We try to rationalize our way around it. We're like, that can't be possible. I know this person. I know them well. They would never do that. And as more facts come out, we realize that they did. Shock and disbelief, they turn to anger. We're mad. We're mad because we placed our eggs in their basket, and they've broken them. And it feels very personal. We're anger. And then we doubt. We doubt the influence. We doubt the investment that we, they've placed in our life. We're like, man, if this occurred, is is any of this real? Did any of what they say, did any of it matter? Was it genuine? Or was it all just lip service? And then we return to anger again. Then we get mad all over again. I think this is our human response of shock, disbelief, anger, doubt, anger. I think if we're thinking well... And I think if we're doing our best to think like Jesus, I think our response needs to be much different. And this is hard. Because like we've talked about, I think following Jesus, like as, as simple as it is to understand, we have to admit at the forefront that often it will go against my most human desires. It will go against my most basic understanding of what vengeance looks like, of what retribution looks like, of what justice looks like. It will go against all of those things at times. So I've done my best just to kind of go through and, and preach this to myself this week as to what this needs to look like for me. And hopefully, hopefully it will feel the same for you. I think the first thing is that we have to do in this process is we all have to start at the same place, which we've already talked about. First Peter 5, 8, we, we already mentioned it. But it says, be sober-minded or be clear and thoughtful. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone 
to devour. We all have to start at this place to understand that sin is real. The battle against sin is real. It is daily. It does not let up. It does not relent. It does not go away until Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect. But until that time, there will not be a day that will go by if we have claimed the name and the blood of Jesus that sin does not knock at our door. It will not go away. And so it says, be sober-minded. It says, be clear in your thought. You have to understand that you have an adversary that is not flesh and blood, but he is is Satan, and he is prowling around like a predator that wants to eat your lunch every day. The very next verse, which we don't have up, it says, uh, resist him and he will flee. But Man, we've got to understand that this occurs every single day. And I, I do believe, like, I hate to make a triangle, but the closer we get to Jesus, the closer these these complicated lines get together to where simplicity rests in my following of Jesus, I think that's when Satan comes after us the most. Very often when we leave the mountaintop of an experience with Jesus, guess who's waiting for us in the valley? Satan. I can promise you. And while I will not call depression a sin struggle of mine, I call it a real struggle of mine, and when I know that Satan will come after me with that, is after God's done something great. When I come down off of that, I know who's waiting. He's right there. Knows how to eat my lunch. Romans 3.23, also of just admitting for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one escapes. That A-L-L word, we talk about that in Greek, in Hebrew, and Aramaic. It means the same thing. Everybody, all, no one is safe. I think the first thing that we do is we we have to have a common starting place to understand that sin is there, it's real, temptation is ever-present, and Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy us. But again, like we said, not an excuse, not liberty, because we're assured, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, of just there's never been a temptation that we're going to encounter that God has not already equipped us to overcome. Most people misquote that verse and say, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. There's going to be a lot of times where we're going to be given stuff that we can't handle, and that's the reason we lean into Jesus. But temptation, on the other hand, he said, no, 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 I've already placed my spirit in you. That is me living in you. You have everything you need if you depend on me to resist sin. It's there. And as a buddy of mine says, Matt Orff, he, he says, I will never be sinless in this life, but I will strive and I will do my best to sin less and less and less. The battle that we fight is real. It's the first step. The second step is this. I think we mourn and we lament. We mourn and we lament. Here, man, and this, here's been the pattern of the church over the past 50 years. Let me, let me explain. The pattern of the church over the 50 years, the past 50 years, has been when one of these things comes out, in the, in the case of a pastor, we want to save legacy and we want to save reputation. So we find the nearest rug and we sweep it under. We can't do that. We can't mourn and we can't lament if we're trying to hide sin. We can't do that. We can't do that. It has damaged the credibility of the church. It has ruined our influence of the church. It is killing our ability to meet people where they are because people do not trust the church because we have hidden sin for too long. We cannot hide sin anymore. 
The same way in which Paul addressed Peter when he went to him and he said, what you are doing is not right. He did it to his face. We must do the same thing. And you say, well, that's not loving. No, no, no. We have to understand. Very often, the things that come out of my mouth when we're addressing sin is the most loving thing that we can do. Because it's not about reputation. It's not about legacy. It is about the gospel going forward. And if the people do not trust us because we've swept sin under the rug, we have nothing. We don't have a leg to stand on. Because we've been sitting on sin. And I know that sounds clever, but it's it's the truth. We can't sweep it under the rug. We cannot mourn and lament if we're hiding it. In order to mourn and in order to lament, the very first thing that we have to do is call sin, sin. We have to call it what it is. We have to call it exactly what it is. We have to say, uh, here's what happened. This was wrong. We will not stand for this. And we mourn over what was lost, we grieve over what was lost, and when we lament, we actually cry out to God and we tell Him what was lost. And we say, God, this is bad. I don't like this. Deliver us from this. Eddie Samakala is a a pastor in Africa, and just so you know that uh, this is not just indicative of the church in the United States to have moral failures on the part of our pastors and our leaders. It happens everywhere in which Satan is, and he's all over Uh, he said this, he says, those who grieve little about sin appreciate the Savior little. Those who grieve little about sin appreciate the Savior little. And so what that means, means is we have to view sin the same way in which God does, and what God, the way that God views sin is he views sin as a relationship breaker, a communion breaker, a union destroyer. We have to view it the same way. And so when we look at the things that have occurred, even though it seems personal and painful to me, we have to understand that there's more at stake. And it should cause us to grieve over what's lost, to mourn over what's lost, to cry out and lament to God over what's lost. We see it in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, and I'm just going to reference it. It's where Peter uh, is confronted by Paul because Peter is being two different people. He's going back to his... Uh, early, early days in which he's being one person with a group of the circumcised and somebody else with the other group. And Paul's like, no, 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 you need to be the same person all the time. We will not stand for this. We have to mourn. We have to lament. But in order to do that, we cannot sweep it under the rug. A damaged reputation is better than covering up serious sin and moral failure. A damaged reputation is better than covering up sin and moral failure. It's amazing to watch some of the marriages that have been plagued by infidelity. And, and I, I can't say this with entire certainty, but just from the small case study that I've been able to watch, uh, the ones that is confessed and brought to light and are seeking to deal with it, a lot of those make it. The ones where they just try to hide it, don't want it spoken about, a lot of those never recover. With churches, it's the same way. When they just try to sweep something, something under the rug to get it out of the way, to get it out of the light to let things go away quietly. Very often those churches do not recover. Those bodies do not heal. Remember the, the quote that I shared last week, Zachten Hale Meshmach and Stinkin de Wunden, from my, from my atheist client that I had for years. Zachten Hale Meshmach and Stinkin de Wunden. Soft hands make stinking wounds. Soft healers make stinking wounds. Sometimes for healing to occur, we have to go after it with a Brillo pad and scrub it out. Surgical steel wool is what they would do in the hospital. I watched my mom do it to my brother because my mom was a renegade nurse 
And I watched my mom, my brother one time, we were out playing in the woods, melting rubber. <laughs> Thought it was cool watching it drip down and, and we got crossed and my brother got a big glob of burning rubber on his wrist. And my mom, the nurse, is like, we can go to the ER or we can do it here. We'll do the same thing they'll do there. And my brother's like, well, I don't want to go to the hospital. So she pulled out some sterile medical surgical steel wool and just scrubbed it until it was out. My brother probably had a little medicinal help at the time, but scrubbed it. Soft hands, soft healers make stinking wounds. We have to address it. We have to mourn. We have to lament. And in order for that to happen, we have to call it what it is. Call it what it is. Here's the third thing we do, and it's twofold. We pray. We pray. We pray for repentance on behalf of the sinner. We pray for healing on behalf of all of those that were hurt. Because here's the other thing. A lot of times we think, just like we, we erroneously believe that my relationship with God is private and personal, we believe that sin is the same way. But here's the truth. It's not. There's hardly any time in which we are entreating and entertaining sin in my life that it affects only me. It doesn't happen like that. Because sin is not about just this body, it's about the body. And when it comes in, it says a little leaven ruins the whole lump. Sin corrupts. And so when we're praying, we're praying for restoration and repentance. Um, Like if we go to Psalm 51, we can throw that up. This is what we're after right here. This is David later after uh, being confronted, after seeing what he had done. And this is the reason that we can use David as an example. If Psalm 51 probably didn't exist in most of the Psalms, then we'd probably not even hear about David. But here's what occurs, and we're just going to read through it. After being confronted by Nathan, he, he did say, yes, I have sinned. God, restore. But this is how he said it. He says, have mercy on me, God. Do not give me what I deserve. Give me what I need. According to your steadfast love, your hesed, your covenant love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that I may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, bring back to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He says, God, here is my sin. I'm well aware of it. Take it away from me so that I can sing to you, so that I can worship you, so that I can remember what joy of salvation feels like. And then, and then, after you have restored me, I will speak of your goodness. People will hear of it from my mouth. I will make sure that they do. And we pray for that. 
I think very often what we pray for when we hear about this, because it's so incredibly personal and it feels like against me, we forget that that sin that was committed, it was primarily against God. And I am collateral damage. You are collateral damage. We are collateral damage. But the sin that we commit, man, it's against God. It's against His standards, His ways, His Word. And so we pray for repentance to that. We pray that God does something in their spirit to actually show them their sin so that they can say the same thing as David. God, my sin, uh, God, my sin is ever before me. I see it. I am so hurt by it because I know that it's hurt you. Please take it away from me. Create in me a clean heart that only you can. And then, then I'll sing of you, then I will have joy in you, then I will speak of you. We pray for that. No matter the pain, no matter the wounding, we pray for that. Now, what they restored, what they're restored to in an earthly manner, to be honest, I believe that's up to God. I, I don't know what to pray for sometimes in those situations. Like, to be honest, like, I want to pray that God will lead them to repentance, but that he does with them after that what has to be done. Because there are, like, if you look at the life of David after this, there were major consequences. His heart was right, but man, his world was wrecked. He lost children. He had one try to overthrow him and then get beheaded, not by him, but at the, friend, at the hands of a friend. He watched just one wall after another fall and fall and fall. Even though his heart was right with God, there were still consequences. But we pray for repentance. The second thing that we pray for is we pray for healing of all parties. Understand that this sin is rarely just going to affect the person that did it. It's going to have long-reaching consequences, and we pray for healing for them. Maybe you pray for healing for yourself. Maybe you have to pray for that even before you can grant them forgiveness on your behalf. We pray for healing. Psalm 147.3, it just says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Man, sin is the greatest wounder that we'll ever experience. More than a harsh word, man, more than sticks and stones, sin cuts deep. Sin cuts deep. And we need to pray to God, the God, the healer, Jehovah Rapha, to heal what is broken, to mend. I love the part where David actually says, Heal my bones that you've broken. The bones that God broke to bring him to repentance. Heal those bones now. Sometimes we need to pray for that. I'm going to move. The fourth thing that we do in this is we seek to forgive. We have to seek to forgive. Because a lot of times we do feel like it's very personal. Even though it was against God, I am collateral damage and I need to offer forgiveness. I need to be quick to do that. Uh, Matthew 18, 21 and 22 it says, then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That was a great number. But Jesus said to him, I say, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or seven times seven, however it's translated. He's like, look, I'm not giving you a number. You forgive as often as they come to you and seek it. And that has nothing to do with the severity of the sin either. It has to do with the brother coming to you or the sister coming to you seeking forgiveness. You do. You grant that to them. You grace that. To them is the word. Charismai, you grace it to them. Ephesians 4, 32 continues the same idea. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We have to remember that if we're seeking to think, to love, to forgive like Jesus, man, he forgave us entirely. And my transgressions were many. Sins, many. Yours, many. He forgave them all past, present, and future when you confess and repent and turn to him and him only to make you right with God. He forgave them all. Do we still need to do stuff when we sin to bring back the, the right relationship? Yes, but your sins, they're covered. 
Jesus' blood wasn't good just for, just for a few. No, they were good for all. And here's the last thing. And I think this is the one that gives us the greatest pause in these situations. We remember that their current sin does not negate their past influence. We have to remember that their current sin does not negate their past influence. God's not caught off guard when we screw up. God called David with full understanding of what David would do. And that blows my mind. God redeemed me with full understanding of what I would do. God called you out of darkness into the kingdom with full understanding what you would do. But he still called you. Our current sin, our current predicament, their current sin, their current predicament does not negate their past influence. It does not negate the past truth that they spoke into your life. Here's the thing that kills us. We throw the baby out with the bathwater very often, and when someone screws up and all of the advice that they've given us in the past, we're like, man, uh, they're, they're flawed. This can't be any good. If it was good then, it's still good now. If it pushed you towards Jesus then, it can still push you towards Jesus now. And that's hard. Because we want to be angry. Man, we want to see retribution occur. We want to see vengeance occur. We want to see people get justice. Man, instead of seeking that, maybe seek God's restoration. God bringing them to repentance. God pulling them back to a place of usefulness. I've grown weary of seeing men that I trust fail. But very often I think, what can God do in me as a result of their failure? What is he going to do in me? Well, in the case of several that I'm aware of, he's taught me what forgiveness looks like. He's taught me what praying sacrificially looks like. He's taught me what honoring my wife looks like. He's taught me what honoring his, his bride, the church, looks like. He's taught me what honoring this life that he has granted me that I don't deserve looks like. Hmm. People will fail. God doesn't. And that's the beauty of today is that people will fail, but God does not. Ask the question, what do I do when this occurs? And, and again, I, just to repeat, start at a good place. Sin comes after all people. Um, move from there to a place of just, uh, man, praying for repentance, praying for healing. Um, mourn and lament what's real. Call it exactly what it is. Seek to forgive them on your part. And man, even celebrate what they did in your life before that. Celebrate the words that God gave them before that. Celebrate the influence that they had. And learn from their mistakes. Learn from their mistakes. I'm going to pray, and I, I think the clock says that we need to wrap up after that. Um, so let me pray, and then uh, I'll toss out a couple things for you. Oh, Andrew's got something. Green. I just want to pray for our leaders and Matthew and uh, those that lead our church, because there's a lot of pressures that, that they face and uh, a lot of temptation and sin that all of us face just because they're leaders doesn't mean they don't face those same temptations. So I want to pray for John for Neil, for Zach, for Matthew, and uh, just appreciate you sharing this message. Ashley, she's out of town. Ashley, yeah. yeah.
Father, we just uh, thank you so much that you've redeemed us, Lord, and that you've called us and that you've brought us from death to life, Father. And I just pray for your protection over our church and, Lord, over our leaders, Father, for Matthew, for John, for Neil, Lord, for Zach and Ashley, Lord, that you just protect them, Lord, that you protect them from temptation and from sin, Lord. And, uh, Father, that they would just follow the leading of your spirit. And, Lord, we just thank you so much for placing them in the positions that they're in. And, Lord, we just pray that if they do fail, Lord, that you would just restore them, that you would help us to show grace, Father. But ultimately, Lord, we trust you and we thank you, and we just thank you for this message. In Christ's name I pray. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Uh, only quick announcements. Uh, if you still want a T-shirt, we got a few left back there. If you spend 15 bucks on a T-shirt, it's going to send our kids to camp. Uh, we've got about 800 some odd dollars left to make sure that everyone's covered. Nobody has to pay anything else, so that's good. So if, if you still would like to contribute to that, we'll still take it. Um, there's going to be a men's Bible study that will probably start at the end of this month. It'll go every other week. Uh, we're still sifting through a few things to see what it's going to be and when it's going to be, but it'll be an evening, most likely Monday or Tuesday night. It'll be about six weeks, um, six sessions, so over about 12 weeks. But if you would like to be a part of that, be on the lookout for the email. We'd love to have you guys come out and be in on that. Um, otherwise, man, have a great week. A lot of new faces today. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, if, if you see a face that's new, make sure that you know their name.